Welcome to Ludo Narrative Dissidents. This is episode 11, The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And uh, with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Greg Stolze and James Wallace, the author of The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. What an extraordinary coincidence. (laughs) Yes, yes. We were lucky enough to get the author. uh, Well, actually, not the author. (laughs) The publisher, according to the book, because uh, the book was actually written by uh, Bar- the the good baron according to the text of the book. So, yes, we should just dive right into it. This is a long and storied game in uh tabletop role playing games that first came out in 1998. Uh, it's had three editions. Yeah, well, uh, James, could you w- what does the game do? What does the game It's it's a storytelling. It says on the front it's a role playing game or it said on the first of the front of first edition that it was a role playing mm-hmm. game and it isn't really it was the, essentially the first storytelling game in the sense that we now understand that. But of course, the phrase, the term didn't exist, so we couldn't use it. And in fact, I had an argument with Gary Gygax about this at some point in 99 or 2000, I think. And uh, what did he, he, he said he enjoyed the game, but he objected to the use, its use of the term role-playing game because he knew what a role-playing game was and this wasn't it. And we went backwards and forwards a couple of times. And finally, I pointed out that the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons claimed to be a miniatures war game on the front cover because the term role-playing game didn't exist yet. And he conceded the point with good grace. Um, <laughs> I was and- going to say, you know, James... Uh- I, he may have a point because this does not have an equipment list with prices, and I've been <laughs> informed more than once that your game's not really a role-playing game if it does not have that. I am frantically scribbling notes for fourth edition here. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's a storytelling game. It's a game, essentially, of being a, a noble adventurer or an adventurer of noble birth in the late 18th, early 19th century, that interesting time in, in certainly Western history where the forces of, of superstition and, and religion were beginning to give way to, to science and research and reason, but the two coexisted. So to say, you know, I fought a, a witch on the platform of a steam engine was... People would believe that they didn't think they wouldn't think you were talking about a Harry Potter experience. So it's got that interesting blend of, of things going on, and the stories of Baron Munchausen come from this extraordinary book, uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, by Rudolf Rasp, who himself was this extraordinary character, um, and has passed. They passed into folklore, essentially tales of larger than life adventures, and the game is about telling stories like that competitively, as if you were a group of adventurers sitting around a table at an inn, trading tales of of your exploits um, and challenging each other to tell the biggest story and jumping into each other's story with objections and points that they may have forgotten. It's diceless. It has no experience. It's a single session game. It plays to conclusion in about an hour and it has um, an actual winner. So it's a game in a very technical and traditional sense. I didn't realize when I was writing it that it was as as novel as it seems to have, have turned out being. I had actually, it came, by 1998, I'd been running Hogshead Publishing for almost four years, and I'd yet to put out a single book with my name on the cover. And Hogshead had always been intended, it wasn't a vanity press, but I was always going to be its lead designer. And for various business reasons, that simply hadn't happened. My focus had, had to be elsewhere. And at the same time, I had been trying to create a role-playing game based on the 
Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the book, and, and the Terry Gilliam movie, and the other movies. There are a number of other movies, including an extraordinary German one from the early 1940s in full color, which it's, it's known as the Nazi one. It's not Nazi in any way. It was mostly the German film industry going, look, you may be bombing us, but we can still do stuff that looks as good as this. And it's this incredible, sumptuous movie. Um, and uh, very much of its of its time. But one of those 40s movies where some of the special effects just look utterly crass and some of them you kind of you blink and you go, how did they do that? Anyway, I, I, do, I digress. So I've been trying to do this role-playing game in a kind of a traditional format with a GM and a player, and one player is the Baron and one player is the Baron's companions. And it had the same problem that most of the Doctor Who role-playing games have as well, which is that one character is foregrounded pretty much constantly and no one wants to play the minor characters. Um, and it wasn't working, and it wasn't working, and it wasn't working. And then one day I was, I think at the time I was I was still basically running Hogshead as a one-man show at this point. Hogshead, the brief version, it started off as a three-person company. We got screwed by our major distributor. I'd had to fire everyone, including myself. I'd had to take outside employment to get the company back on an even financial keel. And um, a, a, discri- a distributor screwing a <laughs> game company yes. in the nineties. Who ever heard of such a preposterous thing? I know, I know. It's um, yes. Uh, it was. I, I went. I thought I went into running a company with my uh, my eyes open. But uh, no, distributors back then were sharks, or the most of, most of them. This was a now defunct British distributor who were basically trying to put us out of business so they could buy our bankrupt stock. Dang. Um, yeah, they were they were sharks. I had yet to publish any role playing game, any role playing any book through Hogshead with my name on on the cover. Creatively frustrated, I was I was having a shower, and I just in that way that one does in a liminal space like that, my mind just wandered, and it kind of went. Well, the reason the Baron Munchausen game isn't working is because it's not a game. You know, the story, the original stories, are not about having adventures they're about telling the tale of having the adventures so it needs to be a game about telling stories about adventures and bang the entire game appeared in my head once Um, you install that remove everything becomes much simpler to do that's that's it yeah so my first thought is this is great and my second thought is this is a half a page of rules you can't sell half a page of rules (laughs) and then as the story goes i'm I go home, I go through some old family papers and discover among the papers of John and Edward Wallace, my forebears, who were, and this is true, games publishers in London in the late 17th, early 18th century. I discover the manuscript of this game that they had commissioned Baron Munchausen to write because it turns out that John had met Baron Munchausen in Dover in the year 17-- and commissioned him to write, to visit and to write this game. And the Baron had, and John had realised it was unpublishable and just hidden it among the family papers. And so I dusted it off, um, found some uh, Gustave Doré artwork to go with it, uh, encouraged Derek Piercy, uh, late of Steve Jackson Games, and the, the guy who did the English language edition of, not De Profundis. What's, uh, what's in nomine Satana. In nomine, yes. Um, lovely chap, very strong layout designer. He did all the layout uh, for me because I still wasn't sure this thing was any good. And and we threw it out for Gen Con 1998, and I expected it to tank because it wasn't like anything else out there. The initial distributor orders had been derisively small. I think we'd had about 300 advance orders, which was pathetic. Um, 
because we were also doing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And for Warhammer, if we were so, if our advance orders for a book were less than 2,000 copies, we regarded it as an abject failure mm. for Munchausen to do 300. But the point was, it was something I'd written for the company and it had my name on it. And I was happy with that. And I thought, it, I thought the work was good. And I thought some of the jokes in it were quite good because, of course, all the stuff about... The stuff about John and Edward Wallace is true. The story about the meeting Baron Munchausen is complete, completely fictional. To the despair of the occasional PhD students who write to me asking if I do, in fact, have access to the family papers of John and Edward Wallace, um, I, I do not. Um, there aren't any. <laughs> We're not that kind of family. Um, but... Uh, but that was basically it. So I, I, we posted it at Gen Con and, you know, a few people picked it up and, and liked it. Um, and then Ken Hyde breezed by the stand and I gave him a copy and he proceeded to essentially become its St. Paul. He went out and spread the word that this thing existed and people should come and buy it. And by the end of the show, we had a hit. We'd sold out of the copies that we'd taken. Distributor orders immediately perked up. And it's it hasn't been in print ever since, but um, it's turned into not only essentially the forerunner of the story game movement um, and the, the first title in what was Hogshead's line of new style games, which was these short format 24-page, 32-page games that we did. We did five of them in all. Um, and this is all long pre The Forge. This is 1998, 1999. Um, but uh, it's become this, this minor modern classic. Which you know, and nobody is more surprised that, than I am that there is a, you know, the third edition was from Fantasy Flight and uh, 160 pages in full full color with painted artwork in in hardback. Oh man, um, I never saw that. How did they puff this up to 160 pages? Well, the second edition, the first edition is is basically the Baron explaining his game. The second edition incorporates rules from uh, Sinbad the Sailor, who, of course, the Baron met and played the game with. Sure. So there's an extended anecdote about meeting Sinbad, and then there's Sinbad's rules for playing the game, and also the rules for a juvenile version called My Uncle the Baron, um, intended for children, the inbred, and those who are very drunk. Um, sure. And a very minor uh, third game in there, which is hidden away for those who are extremely drunk, called Quiz Exit, uh, in which one person leaves the room and everyone else has to remember who it was. Um, so, and then the third edition, um, which I was kind of, you know, reluctant to do, but I was at, at Essen a few years ago and was introduced, oh, I say was introduced, he introduced himself, Alexander Munchausen, a descendant of the Barons, who, um, charming chap from the Russian side of the family, allegedly, um, who tried to hit me up for two centuries worth of back royalties on the game. Um, and we agreed that we would do a new edition with expanded material based on his own adventures. So there's having be, being on the Russian side. There's a, a Soviet version. There's, um, there's a caveman version. There's a version based on Mornington Crescent, the the surreal London travelogue game. And okay. uh, there's a Cthulhu version, uh, the Recall of Cthulhu, uh, which flips the whole thing on its head. In in most in Baron and generally, you are trying to tell a story and other people are trying to interrupt you. In The Recall of Cthulhu, you are trying not to tell the story because if you do, you know you will go mad and everyone else is trying to keep you on track and keep you t- telling the story. Um, and so I think there's 12 or 13 variants um, in there and also some rules for playing playing the game online, which are thoroughly out of Even in three years, they are thoroughly out of date. It's quite extraordinary. All right. So those are those are being rewritten at the moment because there might be a new edition later this year. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I can't say more. No contracts have been signed yet. 
it would be very interesting to see the evolution from the 98 version, which I've got, through the whole the whole spread and, uh, you know, watch it. Watch it expand and mutate to fit new niches. I mean, it still is, it still is at heart, half a page of rules. It's mm-hmm. a very, very simple game in which, essentially, you challenge one person to tell a story. They immediately have to start telling it. The, the example I always use is, Baron, I've heard so many tales of your amazing adventures around the world. The one I've always wanted to hear you tell yourself is the incident, the time that you accidentally got the Pope pregnant. Do tell us. And if you are challenged to do, you just have to start telling the story. You have to launch into it. You get a, about five seconds to have quaff your drink and say, ah. Um, well, for one thing, <laughs> the Pope was asking for it. <laughs> and then there's this, there's a simple bidding mechanic with coins. Anyone can interrupt you by pushing a coin across the table and say, but surely, Baron, you say you were in Vienna in the spring, but it's well known Vienna closes for spring cleaning. How do you explain that? And as the storyteller, you can either go, yes. I, you're, you're quite right, and accept the coin. It was closed your for purse. spring it cleaning. It was closed, but I snuck in disguised as one of the cleaning staff, uh, disguised as a washerwoman. Uh, or you can go, no, you fool, you're thinking of, of Paris. Vienna is notoriously caked with the dirt of four centuries, and push it back with a coin of your own, and then the, the objector can either accept the, the coin that you've just returned to them, or they can add another coin to it, push it back to you, and double down on the interruption. And that can go back and forth and back and forth and becomes a kind of a, a, uh, not, until, not exactly a push your luck thing. Until one and, of you gives way. Or, um, or you duel. Are the dueling rules still in the... The dueling rules are still in there. Um, the dueling right. rules are, are very simple because they needed to be... It's a role-playing game. They need to be a combat system. Mm-hmm. Um, the dueling rules are you go outside and fight a duel, which... Um, I think it's the simplest dueling system, <laughs> combat system I've ever seen in a role-play game. Um, the, or alternatively, play rock, scissors, paper. But duels are dangerous because if you if you lose, you're out. You're out. Yeah. Well, this was something that that struck out that that popped out at me on this reread. Uh, is I'm like there are not a lot of games where there is rule support for one player kicking another player out of the game Mm. and and and, you know part of this is is my uh my analysis of this in its historical context um but i mean are we ready to get that it's under my how does it do what it does category and i I haven't really done my yeah well i i had a different take on what baron munkhausen does which i think Mm. probably zooms out a bit because okay. I, I mean, you, you, yeah, let's, you've, you've had the designer's notes version. I'm very, <laughs> um, know, I've, I've spent 25 years behind the, the, the thing. I've never had the opportunity yeah. to stand out in front of it. I'm sure that, yeah, you're, you're entangled and personally involved. I saw it as uh, it gives you permission to tell zany stories. And it made me think about, Okay, well, you know, back in the day, people would just sit around the fire and they would tell these tall tales. I'm guessing the American version of this would involve Paul Bunyan. Um, and so I'm like, but but we don't do that very much anymore because storytelling has become professional. And I'm like, and that's that's good and bad. It is good in that there are now standards and 
when it is possible to support yourself by writing, you can become a much better storyteller than you would be if you were just making something up next to a fire every other week. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, because it is a profession and because there are high standards, a lot of people, I think, feel like they are not permitted or there's just this subconscious assumption that, well, I can't do that. I can't just tell a story. You got to be trained. And you don't. You don't have to be trained. Nothing is stopping anyone from writing a short story other than the fact that 99 plus percent of the population is not really actually that interested in writing a short story. But you see it with fan fiction. People mm-hmm. like to take, make stories and they like to make up stories about common characters and they like to do it outside of a commercial framework. Um, honestly, when I look at this, uh, it, gaming, when I was coming up and doing it, I'm like, okay, this is this is a cheap hobby. Once you have your initial investment sunk in, once mm-hmm. I bought those three D&D books for AD&D, I could make as many dungeons as I wanted and run as many games of it for my cheapskate friends when we didn't have <laughs> you know, money uh, to, to go to the movies or one of our moms wasn't available to drive us. And for a long time, it was like, yeah, D&D was pure of this commercial or gaming in general, tabletop role-playing games. The play of it was in, in most cases free of this kind of commercial design, but mm-hmm. that's changing because we got Matt Mercer now and... <laughs> There's a part of me that's like, I hate this. I hate that every hobby has to be monetized. I hate that every second of my waking life, I'm either making money or cost or or spending it. And so I I still respond to the impulse in Baron Munchausen, which is like, no, just get together with your friends and some beers and tell crazy stories about the time you got the Pope pregnant. It's fine. They are ephemeral. Nobody is judging them for their professionalness. They're judging them for, oh, that that was a funny story. I liked that one. It was cool. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's, it's cool it's, and funny. Yeah, it, yeah. It's pure amateurism, and I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's very true about the professionalization of, of not just writing and, and storytelling, but of the arts in general. Um, and, you know, like I, I remember uh, going to a park and I was with somebody and they saw someone else painting a landscape painting, you know, and it was clearly just an amateur who was just doing it for the fun of it. And there's like, well, why are they doing that? That'll never get in an art gallery. And then like, on the other hand, I see people playing touch football. It's like, well, they're not going to be professional athletes. Why should they bother playing touch football? They're, what's, the, what's the point of it? And that's like... They'll, ne- they'll never yeah. get a concussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's like... But that's the whole thing is you, the person who is painting that landscape at a park isn't trying to get in the gallery. They're painting for the pleasure of painting the aesthetic. The of, joy of the thing. The mm. joy of creating, the joy of like looking at the world and like trying to understand color and uh, shapes and uh, just the the technical challenges of art and just mm-hmm. the joy of being out in nature. And like that's why people are playing touch football. They're not uh, adrenaline, the, the camaraderie. Like, yeah. 
And that that's a very uh, excellent point, Greg, about like, yeah, the, com- there is, the professionalization of storytelling. It's like, yeah, we don't go around a campfire and tell stories to each other. There is uh, a loveliness yeah. to being crappy at creative endeavors, to just mm-hmm. not knowing what you're doing and playing around and messing about. And it's great. Yeah. You know, I've done that yeah. with watercolors and lino cut prints. And now, and now, having pursued my folly for years, I'm, you know, I no longer completely suck at it and people seem to like them. But yeah. it's, you know, at, at, I started out by just like, well, I'm just going to fart around with this and see if it works the way it mm-hmm. looks like it works. And learned things and sliced my fingers up pretty good t- sometimes. But it's, yeah. but I it's, now... It's true can't drive past a tree without thinking, oh, I know exactly how I'd turn that into a lino cut print. Because <laughs> I have two kids who are you know, early teens, and they're at the, the stage of giving stuff up because they feel they're not good at it. Things that they've loved and enjoyed and done all their whole life. Drawing is the, the, the main one. But now they're, you know, they're at secondary school and they've got teachers who are going, no, you know, maybe that's you're not good at that one. That's not a good piece. And they take that enormously personally and they stop doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, thankfully my, my eldest is, has not been put off and is still doing what she does, she, what she loves on the guitar. She's, um, you know, composing and writing songs and stuff. But my youngest is finding she wants to be a writer. She was, she drew industriously, but has now clearly somebody told her that her drawings were no good and she has taken it to heart. And we, that space, that space of just being able to be creative because we're enjoying it is taken mm-hmm. away from us at quite an early age. Unless mm-hmm. in that sense that unless you're going to be serious about something, you shouldn't do it. The idea of doing something for fun is um, is is robbed from us. And yet games are all about fun. If a game is not fun, it's not a game. It's not working as a game. It's one of the reasons that mm-hmm. gamification is bullshit. Because um, it's not about addiction. It's not about repeat. You know, just building up repeated um, behaviors and 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 things like that. It's about are you enjoying this experience for no other reason than you are enjoying it. Um, yeah. And this goes. You know, Husinger talks about this. Kawa talks about this. Games are fun, or they're not games. Um, and so I think. I mean, what you were saying about role playing games. Certainly, the the act of being a, a GM or a DM or, or whatever you want to call it is very much about that desire to entertain your friends. You want to give your friends a good time, and you know it's complete. It is ephemeral. The moment the words are, or the moment the session is over, generally it's 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 forgotten, or at least it's in the, in the past. There is no permanent record, and it doesn't matter as long as people were having a good time. Um, I'm watching you remember sessions. Yes, and, and you remember pieces. Lines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, individual die rolls. You know. Yes, but but it's all in the memory. It's not mm-hmm. you know. It's not recorded. It's and mm-hmm. certainly it's not in almost all cases. It's not commercialized. And this yeah. rush to do this podcasting, um, I do not begrudge anyone the right to broadcast their role playing game session, but that's for me the joy of it is just being in a room with you know. Either friends or, or or even strangers creating a story collaboratively or a bunch of stories collaboratively, and quite often when I'm there, I want to try and make people laugh. The bits I remember of all playing games are 
Um, there was a moment we played Lady Blackbird over lockdown with people I'd known through email, but mm-hmm. never actually role played with before. And it turned into this long session. And the main thing I remember is I was playing the goblin character um, who had did a long impassioned speech about the goblin nature and stuff and, and you know, the essence of goblinhood and something and concluded with, um, I can't remember exactly what it what the specific point was, but he said, I read a book once and someone said, what did it say? And he just said, I don't remember. But uh, <laughs> I, it was just the timing of the timing was, was better. But the idea that the goblin felt he could prove a fact because he'd read a book just, you know, yep. just dinged. And mm-hmm. that's perhaps not the funniest thing I've ever said, but it's lodged in the memory. The golden Perfect. memories. Yeah. So, yeah, and I see Baron Munchausen as attempting to liberate people from the, A, from gaming's usual mechanics, uh, which at the time were extremely physics-based. There's none of that here. Uh, none of this physics nonsense. And also from the worrying that what you're going to do isn't good enough. And although it's competitive, it has a a cushioning around that. Um, so, I mean, the this gets into the how do people play it uh, part, where people either play Munchausen to win or to laugh, and they're not mutually exclusive, but that it is set up so that it's almost as if the competition distracts you from the the anxiety about creating. You know, when you're talking about the professionalization of art, I I started watching this documentary on YouTube about the Disney Fast Pass system. It's on a channel called Defunct Land. It's just about their queuing system that they've had in Disney. Uh-huh. And then it, but then there's this brilliant comment. It's like, I, I, I didn't expect this to be entertaining. And then I was fascinated. Then it became a critique of late capitalism. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's... Of course kind of is. a running theme of a lot of things today. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. It's like, oh, people will tell stories again. And then uh, you have to be professional. Oh, it's like, oh, well, huh. Wonder why that keeps coming up. Um, yeah. Capitalism is a powerful tool, but it's not the only tool. Come on, yep. people. Other yep. things can do but, things. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I just like how it, it, it's cropping up again and talking about like, if you're, if you're not making your money doing this, it's not worth doing. It's like, well, huh, huh. Oh, are you ju- um, are you just playing this game for fun, pleasure, and joy? What's the, what the hell is wrong with you, you yeah, communist? That, that's we have to actively like like work remind against. ourselves yeah. to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, I do remember. Uh, I've never played uh, this game, but I do actually remember reading the copy of the first edition. Uh, and even decades later, I remember. Uh, two bits about it. Uh, one is the description of combat rules is like something from a Prussian, com- you know, war manual, and I just that that was such an evocative description of like RPG game mechanics. I was like, oh yeah, no, that is kind of weird when you think about it. <laughs> he's um, got our number. <laughs> yeah, he's got our number. Yeah, yeah, no, it'd be like that. Um, and then the other was the um, that this is getting more specific about how it does, but like the rules for the companion. Um, I thought that was a very clever bit of game writing that that stuck with me. Um, so, but yeah, that's getting more into the specifics. So, we'll, I'm sure that'll come up in a second. So, yeah. so in in how it does that, and my my notes just say in a very 1998 way, um, <laughs> and and again, this is 
because I'm reading the 1998 first version, but competition and therefore antagonism are baked in. The fact that, you know, if I if we were playing this and I decided, you know what, I want to get Ross, I want to try and get Ross kicked out of the game so he can't play, that is a possible achievable outcome. It's it's high risk though. It's I mean you're talking about the the dueling system. Yeah. And I bet nobody did it much. I bet that almost never well, happened. I had a question about that. Um so you can lose all your coins through a duel, but um you can not having coins doesn't mean you can't tell a story when it's your turn, right? Or is yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, you No, you can. Yeah. You can't just I can't remember. In my memory, the, I have not reread the game before this <laughs> for the session. Just trusting my memory, which is increasingly yeah. appalling. <laughs> That's um, trusting your memory is a young man's game, Jake. Yeah, Greg, can, Greg can certainly like duel me and take my coins, and then I can't make challenges. Um, but like I can, I, when, when it's my turn to tell a story, it's still my turn to tell a story. Uh, and I'm certainly at a disadvantage without the coins. But yeah. uh, the winner of the game is chosen by the other players, and players can't yes. vote for themselves. So, in a way, Greg can't keep me from playing the game. He can put me at a disadvantage at a great risk, but that's it. Is my understanding of it? Yeah. Um, no, they, the the dueling rules do specifically say if if you lose a duel, and there there are two ways. There are two separate dueling systems. There's dueling and dueling for cowards. Dueling involves the two players involved in the argument, which is either an argument over the rules or an insult to one's mother or right to a noble title or something else. I forget. Uh, you go outside and you fight a duel. Dueling for cowards is rock, paper, scissors. Um, so it's it's basically 50-50. You know, yes, yeah. you can challenge someone to, to a duel, but you are as likely to be uh, the there's, loser. If I don't know. Lose, there's skill in RHP or rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> there is, but um, the I game have also never kind of assumes you're beaten be my wrong. wife at it. <laughs> um, um, but just to, to give the point, if you lose, you must give the winner all your coins and retire from the game. That is what it specifically uh, says. So, yeah. And, I mean, I think part of this is 90s designs had a presumption of bad faith a lot of times. Um, systems of control and exclusion for players were common. And I'm I'm now thinking about the stuff in Continuum where it's like, okay, in order to progress, you have to memorize this thing and be able to, yeah. to recite it from memory. I think that's not exclusive to the. I mean that that like I've been reading a lot of uh, AD and D second edition stuff from the eighties uh, for role playing public radio, and they, if anything, was even more hostile to player characters. Yeah, like you you oh, adventures yeah. were written on a on a railroad, and you and like players can't do this. Players can't do this. Players yep. have to do this. Player assume the players do this. Um, and and the canonical example is Cinnabar. Which I'm sure you remember, which uh, even has rules that uh, block the GM from playing in bad faith. At the end of the adventure, the GM must hand the adventure notes over to the players. And if any part of the play disagrees with what's in the notes, they can, f I, I think they can f fine extra experience points off the GM. Holy or something cow. Like that. Wow. It's, yeah. Cinnabon. Oh, so wow. and and <laughs> so these were all attempts to deal with the idea that your player was going to try and players were going to try and derail the GM's plot and that was you know that was like the problem they were seeking a solution to and the 
the solutions that emer- have emerged from it, I mean, the answer I came up with that is, don't have a plot. Plots, uh, they, the your players will never follow the ble- breadcrumbs you leave. They will never figure out the puzzles you set. They will always want to do their own thing. And uh, the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, I'm into it. That's my bag. Let's see what these crazy kids do this week. Let's just let them go fly their freak flag and see who salutes. Uh, I find that that gets a lot. It gets into more interesting territory than if I just write another horror scenario about disease because that's my personal neuroses. Um, And so, at least in Monkhausen, it's the the systems of control are much gentler than and the tone of it's all in good fun. We're just sitting around having some beers, telling some tales. Really, sort of depressurizes the creative endeavor. And although pressure can help creativity, pressure can also halt creativity. Mm-hmm. So, um. Are we on to how do people play? Because this this antagonism thread leads into the, okay, are you playing to win or are well, you playing to laugh? Um, before we get into that, how people okay. play, we should mention some of the other mechanics. Um, okay. Like the <laughs> companions, like I mentioned earlier, um, every player gets one uh, essentially mulligan, for lack of a better term, uh, if they tell a story if they paint themselves into a corner by saying oh yes i have a companion who can do this extraordinary thing they're a giant they can run (laughs) over the water uh they they had they can command the birds of the air whatever it is um and so that that sort of but you only get one per story and uh i i like that uh you get one thing that is general because the the game assumes um, everyone is a gentleman, but it's still, it, it's a fantastical version of the, the 18th century world, but it's still kind of the real world. So in the sense of like how physics works and stuff like that, like you can, you can embellish, but you can't just say, well, then I just use my laser vision. Um, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you it's yes, not, you have, you have a man who can do that for you. <laughs> yes. But you can only do it once and you only yes. get the laser vision man. One. That's it. You can't have the, you know, I simply uh, had my manservant whose glare is so intense that it can light objects on fire with the sheer force of his irritableness. Exactly. But you can, yeah. So I, I really like that as a system um, because yeah, it adds, it, it gives everyone a little bit of flavor, but it doesn't, uh, it's not overpowering, uh, and it's and, in again, keeping I, with Monkhausen, who had yeah. you know these these crazy uh, people mm-hmm. with superpowers hanging out with him. Yeah, yes, and it doesn't become Calvin Ball like it's not just I can do whatever I want and nobody can stop me. You know that kind of right. Thing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it is one of those. It doesn't actually crop up very much in play in at least the the play that that I've witnessed. Um, it's almost a hangover from my attempt to do a proper you know a traditional role playing game based around. Uh, Munchausen, but um, but yeah, certainly there have been moments where someone's tried to introduce a, a crowd of, of people, and someone's got no, 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 that's against the rules. But when I explain the rules, it's not it's not one of the rules that I traditionally explain. I don't think it's in the half page. I think it's it's kind of it's in the full text, the, the stuff the Baron's written. The half page of rules, which are included in the rule book, are written. I think it says by one of his friends, who's who's less verbose. Um, 
And I don't That's think right. the companion. You're rules right. It's not in. It's in not in the rules and brief in Appendix yeah. Two. Yeah, it's um, kind of it's it's an expanded rule. But uh, you know, I'm 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 glad that you you think it's a good a good rule. Yeah. I have never I have never used it myself as such in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think now I think those that's pretty much all the mechanics. Like you said, it's it's a it it precedes the itch.io one page game trend by many de- by several decades <laughs> but like uh, but you it, can time, you can yeah. see that they're like they're like animals that have evolved to the same niche right mm-hmm. so it's yeah i i can see how this opened up a lot of options for people and that once the publishing atmosphere changed so that it's like oh yeah if you want to be a publisher, you're a publisher. Just write something and put it online. Boom. Instead mm-hmm. of, oh, well, I'm going to need a print run of at least 300 to take to Gen Con. I mean, that's a much higher barrier to get over. Yeah. yeah. And distribution so, has changed a lot. There's no longer one distributor who can ruin your business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> much yeah. as Kickstarter might be trying. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Anyway, I think uh, there was in '98 there was someone selling digital versions of role playing games. Terry Austin is the name that comes to mind. Um, This does not. I I know PDFs were a thing. Yeah, but it was it was in its infancy, Um, and so basically, if you wanted to put a game to distribution, particularly if you were if you had a company as as I did. You had to. There was a minimum price because distributors weren't going to bother stocking anything. Much um, as the first edition, which is only twenty-four pages, was priced at four dollars ninety-five, and Dan Steele of Esdevium convinced me to put it up to five dollars ninety-five because distributors would not take it seriously at under five dollars. Um, and I was I was hesitant to do that, but I, I I saw the logic in it. And you know, these days, of course, drive-through you can put stuff up for a buck fifty cents mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that there wasn't chase that response. long tail. Yeah, um, and yes, and you had if you wanted to get into the three tier distribution system, it had to look commercial. It had to be at a commercial price. It had to be available. Um, and uh, oh, I can I can completely digress here. I'm not going to. Um, right. But, I'm just uh, thinking yes. about there was something I wrote that was released on a CD ROM as. Ooh. Yeah, it was all PDFs on a CD-ROM, and you would buy it like uh, buy it in a little jewel case. Yeah, wow. there were um, there were a few of those. There was um, so, oh yeah, TSR yeah. released some of those. Like they, they, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember get, getting some of those before in the late days of AD and D. Before um, we all learned better. Yeah, well, <laughs> before Third Ed came along and <laughs> just just destroyed everything else. Yeah. Yes. Uh, All right. Um, anyway, yeah, sorry. We're, we're, so we're uh, we, were, we were on how people play, and I said to win or to laugh. And, um, I mean, creativity is hard. And there are people mm-hmm. who don't think it's hard, who think, oh, your job's easy. You just draw pictures or write or make up stories. And it's not hard in the same way that operating a tree saw for eight hours a day is hard but if you had someone who says oh writing's easy you just make stuff up and you said okay sit in front of this blank screen and type me a, a you know 
type me the first 2,000 words of a 5,000-word short story that makes sense and isn't a retread and has an original idea to it and is fun to read. Do that in two days. Uh, I'll, I'll see you when I'm back. If they, in good faith, tried to do that, even if they succeeded, at the end they would probably admit, oh, yeah, it's not easy to just turn this on at will. Right. And well, it's the same way everyone thinks they've got a book in them. And yeah. um, yes, they have, because it's shoved up their ass. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and many of them who, who succeed in pulling it out of their ass, it reads like it's been shoved up their ass. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you got you got to write through one or two pretty bad books before you get to your good ones. Uh, as I, as I Mark Gascoigne, my, my mentor and, and great friend and, and editor, um, says, your first million words are going to be rubbish. Get them out of the way as quickly as you can. Yup. So, but this seems to, Baron Munchausen's tone, as much as anything else, and sort of its its framework and assumptions, give you permission to fail and be stupid and be silly. And the phrase, the phrase I wrote down, and I can't remember where I saw this, is, you know, haha, what if we kissed, you know, as a joke? <laughs> Which is one of those things where it's like, yes, we're kidding, and now I have deniability, and maybe I'm not kidding. But this mm. exists in that same kind of uh, unresolved waveform where it's like, okay, yes, stories, they're just dumb stories, and we're going to vote on them, and they're not important, and they don't matter. But at the same time, I very much want to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the game you just did, this, you know, kissing for a joke, it's, we're back to games of fun. Postman's Knock, the you know, the classic kind of teenage games of you, you're kissing, but you're kissing because the game told you to, and it's almost like a forfeit, but it's not. Yes, yeah. well, this is, this uh, is, bottle, was, yeah. someone was yeah. talking about drinking games and how mm-hmm. in American drinking games, you have to drink when you lose. And in German drinking games, apparently, you get to drink when you win. And I'm like, well, this is, <laughs> this is because America, you know, you can be a hardcore Puritan or you can be a debauched deviant. And both of those are to some extent acceptable, but you just can't be average. <laughs> and so you need a drinking game to give you permission to really get hammered. It's like, well, I didn't want to drink this whole pint of gin, but the rules said I have to, so I can't let the rules down. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, Baron Munchausen's like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to stretch out and do all these crazy ideas, but the game says I have to, and I, you know, I gotta... I got to give it my all to try and win by being the wildest one. And that can remove, can ironically remove pressure and make it easier to create. Yes. So, and it, the, it does have around it this, I, I, I refer to my, in my notes to the grown man drag of drink and gambling which, you know, oh, that's, that's so macho, you know, real men mm. drink and they'll stake all their, their, their paycheck on a game of poker and and this seems to be kind of the count to counteract the idea oh well real men don't tell stories and that it is this this thing to be disdained and yeah. so the rugged macho toxic masculinity of 
Baron Munchausen is is the the candy coating that lets the medicine of I want to tell stories and I don't care if that makes me an alpha male or not. It makes that a lot easier to swallow. Yeah, it's yes, and it is. It's the stories are supposed to be absolutely self-aggrandizing and unashamedly boastful. Third edition says that it's a game of wagers, wit, wine, and competitive boasting. I think first edition said competitive lying on the back, and I slightly prefer the competitive lying. Yep, line. it but says it that. It's, it's about it's who can tell the biggest story, and there are competitions around the world for, you know, you'll sit down in, in uh, a room with, you know, an auditorium, and six people will tell a a big fish story essentially and then judges decide who who tell who's told the best one and munchausen is is essentially that but but gamified um and as as you say it it allows you to do this in in a way that's sort of socially acceptable but at the same time you wouldn't normally normal people wouldn't and again it's that distancing you slightly from the subject because it's not you telling the story it's your 18th century self and, and not just your 18th century self, your boozy, entitled, dishonest concupiscent. concupiscent. Yes. Is that Is how it, it's pronounced? Am I pronouncing um, that right? Tuppence? I'm, yeah. I'm Tuppence, not sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, but it's the, the fancy way to say horny. Uh, <laughs> um, not quite sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but there is a character generation system in there because part of the, you know, the padding the, the manuscript that uh, basically fills the book out to a commercial length is a sort of a parody of, of role-playing games. And there's a character generation system in there, which is basically get a blank sheet of paper, write your name on it, and there's a long discussion about how you choose your title. Um, but, you know, come up with some fanciful name for, for your character, and that's pretty much it, except maybe jot down the names and contact details of anyone around the table you find attractive. That's... Like that's yeah. the only the, the biggest criticism. Well, the, the the criticisms I have of uh, this game is the um, setting. That well, that would be the criticism in the sense that, that would be the thing I would house rule first. Uh-huh. Uh, the yeah. second thing would be the like you, you no one gets out of the game. You can just lose your coin in a duel because I don't right. want anybody. Yeah. yeah, but the first thing would be like uh, I it, certainly among the people I'd be playing this with. I don't know how well versed they are in the tropes and literature of uh baron munchausen in that in that you know gulliver's travels and th- th- those sort of um styles of stories like I-, I don't know how familiar they are with that that type of uh, uh genre fiction so uh fantasy so i would be i would not be as forcing like that we are in the 19th century it could be in the here and now it's just a fanciful version of like how you became the king of all waffle houses you know um (laughs) or how you slew the dragon walmart or whatever um so uh i that would be um for players who i know would be into that like that that would be something i would try but like that would be the only thing um that I could see this not working with certain players that I know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's absolutely valid. I've had a couple of conversations over the years with radio people who are vaguely interested in, in you know, maybe doing a, a 
you know, not a podcast version, an actual radio version of it. But mm-hmm. that is always the sticking point. It's it's the setting. And in fact, I, I do have an alternate version of it, which is the Club of Extraordinary Adventures, which is the idea that you've gathered in this kind of this elite club, which somehow kind of transcends time mm-hmm. and space, although that's never said explicitly. But so you can tell, if you want to tell a World War II story, fine. If you want to tell, um, you know, a modern-day superhero story, fine. Um, and that works pretty well. But... You know, I created it as a Baron Munchausen story because I, I love Baron Munchausen. And at the time, you know, the Gilliam movie was less than 10 years old. Um, people, it, was, it was fairly current. People were aware of it. People are much less aware of, of that particular setting and that particular mm-hmm. character and style of storytelling now. The, I do feel, blowing my own trumpet, I think the book does a good job of world-building that without explicitly building the world. But it gives an idea of the style and tone. But you can't, if you're using this as an after-dinner role-playing game, which is a, a phrase I've used more than once to describe it, you can't rely on anyone else having read the book. Only one of the players mm-hmm. will probably have read the book. So all of that is 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 for naught. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's a, it's a very valid um, point. Yeah. Oh, and- I mean, I do like some of the, in third edition, they do have the alternate rule setting. And I know... Uh, like you mentioned, the Cthulhu one. I also like the one with the um, idea that every player is a monster hiding out as a human. And, oh, yeah. uh, but the other, the player who suggests the story is, oh, well, how did you, a zombie, become a brain surgeon? Um, and that, <laughs> those kind of prompts. I, I think those would work really well uh, with the players I know. So, yes, nice tan, uh, nice tan Count Dracula is my personal favorite. <laughs> Yeah, that's I like that one. It's very succinct. Let me just interrupt to say I looked it up and it's pronounced concupiscent. Concupiscent. Ooh, yes. Oh, now ja- now James recognizes. He's I'm, like, oh, I'm, that. I'm familiar with the word. It would not have come to mind. <laughs> oh, that's what they were yelling at me. Okay. Oh, I've probably um, gone with incorrigible myself. But in in terms of how people play it now, I obviously uh, James, I assume you've played more than a few sessions. Yeah, um, yeah. Greg, have you played it uh, either? I can't remember, so probably not. Okay, um, James. If I did, I it was back in the nineties. I'm curious uh, about like in in from your perspective. What kinds of stories win? Are they the ones with the most jokes? Are they the ones with the most amusing twists? Um, like, is it entirely like party, like the the social etiquette dynamics? Like, the most per- popular person at the table, or the most charismatic player wins. Um, what what have there been any uh, generalities about like what makes a good five minute story versus a bad five minute story in this game? I, it depends entirely because it's the players who, the other players who judge it. It depends entirely on on the crowd. Um, it is not usually the most charismatic person. Um, it's not always the best storyteller, um, and it's not always the biggest, um, the biggest story either. It's you know the ex- massive excursions around the sun and the moon and wars and stuff like that do not necessarily have anything. Um, that, that will beat the the tale of the invention of the seedless grape, um, <laughs> which that's I'm quoting myself from the book. Um, but yeah, it's no, I don't think I can. I don't think I can. It it tends to be the ones that the stories that kind of come together nicely and feel like they're a rounded thing um, that you know they're they're self contained. Um, all the occasions, the ones that the ones that kind of link into other players' stories as well. 
Oh, um, oh okay, yeah. Making people laugh is is an important part of it. It is a humor game. It's it it's about um it allows people not it not only allows people to be funny, it also I think helps people be funny because it gives them the framework for the story and it gives them the setup essentially and then they have to, you know, then they get five minutes to come up with a punchline. Um five but, minutes while they're talking though. While they're while they're talking, yes. And it is um, I mean, just for all that, for all we were saying earlier on about the, the liberty of, you know, being allowed to tell a story, that moment where you are given your setup line is, even for me, and I, I've, I've played this thing hundreds upon hundreds of times, it, there's still that sensation of being pushed into a swimming pool when you get that line. It's, there's a moment of, oh, and you're in midair, and then the cold water, and you, uh, then your first idea comes, and the trick of the game is just go with that idea. Do not sit around and try and think of something better. Go with the first idea, because another idea mm. will follow it, and it doesn't matter if it's nonsense, because that's the idiom of the game. It's all nonsense. When we were talking about how it works, I'm, I should have explained this, the worst game of Munchausen I ever played was actually during playtesting. The second playtest I ran was with my first playtest I ever ran was at a convention with people I didn't normally um, play with, um, and it went so well to the yeah. extent that um, we were sitting around and someone's I would guess eight or nine year old came in, had not had the game explained to them, but just joined the circle. And when it was their time, it turned. We, Do you want to play? Yeah, and he was challenged to tell a story, and he just went for it and created this perfectly Munchausen story and dealt with the interruptions. The worst playtest was then with my regular playtest group. And I said, well, you challenged me to tell a story and somebody, and here's the, here's the list. And someone picked a subject and challenged me to, and then did not interrupt me as I told the story. And that was awful because the game only works if you are being interrupted by the other players who are throwing objections and stuff into you and that sounds like that's going to be even more terrifying but it's not because each of those interruptions is a little breathing space for your imagination to catch up and it's what they're essentially doing is they're throwing you a ball and you get the choice of whether you integrate that in the story or reject it so they're throwing you handholds as on your way up the cliff um and you know you're it's bits of bits of the structure of the of or optional bits of the structure of the story. So that the interruption mechanic is absolutely key to how it works and, and, and why it works. Um, and groups that do not interrupt well, or I, I, if there is a story will succeed um, if the interruptions are good uh, and are dealt with well. Um, so somebody who can who can handle interruptions and can grab these things and build them into the story rather than just rejecting them out of hand, which will cost them the coins. And this is the other thing about the game: if you if you reject a lot of uh, coins, then you you know you're pushing your coins out to the other players. You end up with very little in your in your purse. If you play the game tactically to gain coins while you're telling the story and while you're interrupting with other people. You are unlikely to win because you can't vote for yourself, but you become the kingmaker. You end up with a fat wallet, and you, which you then use to vote for the story that you liked the most. So playing tactically will not win the game. What wins the game is telling the best story. Excellent point about the interruptions. Yeah, I had not. I, I mean, it's a game of improv, but it's not just the storyteller. It's everyone. It's, it's, it's a collaborative yes. juggling 
um, which is sounds daunting, but yeah, get a few beers and everyone. I'd yeah, everyone. Yes. Is gonna well, yeah, and the other thing is, it, it, yeah. it's not classic improv. It's not yes and improv. Yeah. It, the game specifically gives you the opportunity to just go no. That is not what happened, and you push it, and you push it back, and that in itself is funny. Someone comes up with this this ornate thing that you've forgotten from your story; they're quite sure, and you just go, "No, you're an idiot," and push a coin back to them. It's it's funny because it's unexpected. Um, it's mm-hmm. as I, as I say, the game helps, or a game at least as as I intended it is supposed to help people be be funny. If you, if you're not funny, it will it will help you along the way. It will help you get laughs and build your confidence. So with any luck, you'll come with the rousing climax for the story. The mistake, incidentally, in, in the thing to do when you're given your story prompt, come up with your first idea. Do not come up with, with you know, where you necessarily want the story to go because people will interrupt and will drag you away from that. Um, so don't but- try and work towards an end, but just work towards the next beat. Yes, I mean it's have an have a rough ending in mind, but don't be set on it. Don't mm-hmm. don't try if if someone's dragging be, the story away from it, do not try and drag it drag it back. Be but open yeah. to something better. I mean, part it, of this sounds yeah. like there's this. Uh, I I can't remember who what her name was. I read this uh, this woman's book on creativity, and she talked about the inner censor, right? The mm-hmm. the little voice in your head that's like, that's not very good, is it? Why are you writing this? No one's going to care about this. This is weak. This is ripped off. This is stupid. Your time is better spent elsewhere. Blah, 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 blah. And that a large part of creativity is shutting that voice up. And then mm-hmm. when you need to edit, it's like, okay, now you can have your say if you're polite. But when you are just getting out your first draft, it's like, nope, time for you to go in the basement. Uh, and, and you lock up your inner center, sensor and just disgorge whatever comes forth. And it sounds like that is the Baron Munchausen strategy. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yes. It's it's going to be a first draft. It's just, just makes it, you know. Um, a story I tell too much is um, when we were working on the Paranoia reboot um we were asked what we would do for a gm screen and the idea we put forward is that the player's side would be all kinds of crunchy tables and and you know charts and and you know really numerical information the gm side would just be in foot high letters the words make some shit up (laughs) Uh, sadly we were we were not allowed to do that i still think we should have done i think it would have been legendary but um uh, essentially, I mean that's all Baron Munchausen is. It's it's make some shit up, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know Who because you're like role playing, because you're in character, that already gives you the the excuse to you know the the humour. It does it does seem to work. It does seem to people do seem to have a good time with it and perhaps say things and do things because they're role playing rather than telling a story as themselves. They are not the author. Their character is the author. It allows them to go their imagination to go places that perhaps it wouldn't normally. Ah, yes, because you're you're already at the remove of having to imagine this person who's telling a story, and now mm. you're not going to imagine that person's inner sensor. Yes, 
Exactly. And everyone addresses you as Baroness or, or Count or Chief Financial Officer or as Sheikh or whatever it is, whatever wow. title you've chosen for yourself. Now so I, they're not, kind they're of. Not, they, they, nobody says, so Greg or, or okay, Ross. It's you're addressed by the title of your character. So, Admiral Stolze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, this kind of makes I, me want to get a costume and create a character and try and tell, a, you know, write a story in character as some other entire person, though that may be getting, and maybe getting out on the thin edge of a branch, though. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, the, the entire book is written in the character of Baron Munchausen, which was an interesting job um, <laughs> because, yes, let's, let's be honest, it was not a discovered manuscript. I wrote yeah, it. I yeah. wrote most of it in kind of 200-word bursts while I was commuting to my day <laughs> job on a palm-top computer at Scion 5. Oh, boy. Was it the Scion 5? I think it was the Scion 5. I, uh, it could have been a sharp PC 3100. Um, but yes, a, a very underpowered thing, just balanced on my knee on the London Underground. If I could get a seat for maybe 20 minutes and I'd knock out 200, 250 words at a time. And that built up into, into a complete book over several months. Um, it was incredibly busy and sometimes getting into the mindset was, was hard, but some mornings you just, it's the way Douglas Adams describes, a, um, writing bits of the hitchhiker that, you know, you'd look down and you think I've only written, it's been an entire day and I've only written 200 words. I've only come up with two jokes, but it's, yeah, but it's really concentrated. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, when the jokes, when you read the thing back, it's, it's dense with, with jokes. Um, and I'm still very, I'm very pleased with quite a lot of the writing. Some, every time I do a new edition, um, I do edit it. I, it was, as Greg said, a product of the 90s. There are some 90s assumptions in there. It was, and the Baron is a product of his time, of the 1790s. Um, he is crass. He is racist. He is sexist. He just assumes that being a white German army officer, gentleman adventurer, is the best thing in the world. And therefore, he is, the, you know, he is essentially the, the pinnacle of God's creation. And everyone else should just realize that. Um, and he is... He is very rude about everybody else, um, particularly the French. Um, Which has nothing again. to do with you being British. <laughs> has nothing to, I have great respect for the French. I was working for them until recently. Um, maybe I should start being rude about the French again. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the only problem I had with it was, and again, I'm reading the, the first edition, the sort of uh, uh, Cro-Magnon uh, version, and I'm like, this. there are points where it can be hard to tell, okay, am I joking about X or is it just X? Do I just want permission to say the forbidden thing that I would never say when I, if I was speaking as Greg? Mm. Which is, you know, uh, that that's always something that comes up in gaming generally or can. Right. Gaming, I mean, table etiquette, you know, who, who who's at your table and... Uh, the social contract, as, right. as we would say. So, yeah, um, I, I think, yeah, obviously the, the text of the game is obviously written in character, so you can't really use that as a justification for bad <laughs> reaching the social etiquette of a table. It's like, well, the Baron would have said it. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, well, that's not really going to cut it now. The Baron ain't here. So, um, yeah, no, it's... So. Um, 
I think we've kind of uh, covered all the topics. I think we've thrashed yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we kind of addressed yeah, I mean, why it, people play it at the first, but you know, it, it, it's all good. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, this is under our usual time, but it is, it's a slight work. It's, um, it's, it's you 24 pages. Let me see how yeah. many pages the, uh, I did notice that you used the future tense. In the first edition, James. That's the Baron. The Baron uses the future tense. I believed in you, James! <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, think, I think the Fantasy Flight one, it gets confused because the the index bit is usually given Roman numerals and then it goes into full pages. But I think the Fantasy Flight edition is 160 or it might be 144 pages. But it's still, you know, comparatively, that's one of the shortest games, shorter games that we've done. And most of it is padding. I'm going to be completely upfront. I'm I'm very (laughs) pleased with the padding. I think it's, um, I am told by people whose opinions I respect that it's genuinely funny, Um, uh, you know, which is high praise. Well, you've it, in many of these episodes, you've talked about how much you love a good example of play, and in many ways, the text is itself an example of play. Not quite mm. to the extent that they did it with De Profundis. No, but De Profundis is is I think I mean I, the moment I read De Profundis, I just you know, this this is it's everything I was trying to do with Baron Munchausen just taken as far as it can. Baron, you know, De Profundis is its own example of play. The rule book is its own. It's, it's so good. It's so clever. Worth reading just for that. Um, but yeah, essentially that was when I realized that I could essentially write the game in a way that would explain without explaining how to play the game or the tone and the style in which the, the game should be played without just... It's padding, but the padding is there for a reason. It's not right. just there to bulk out the book. A long time to write. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greg, any final thoughts? Um, no, other than uh, I, I I, like the idea of Baron Munchausen. I did not realize how much of its DNA is in my own game in space. But I'm like, oh, yeah, narrative control as an economy around tokens. Yeah, I'm... I didn't consciously model it on that, but you can you can see that there was contagion, and so, mm-hmm. yep. Thanks, James. No <laughs> oh, pleasure. I think it was. I do get the feeling very much that it was one of those things that I was lucky to be first. If I hadn't published it, someone else would have done a game with a similar style and system. Um, I was just lucky that I was in a position with Hogshead that I was treating Hogshead as a glorified hobby. At this point, I didn't care that the game was not going to make any money. If I had been making sound business decisions, I would never have published it (laughs) because because it would have been a disaster. You know. Yep. Um, And yet here it is. It was was, really fortunate. Um, Yep. Third edition is 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 a thing of beauty. There are still some copies out there. Um, Indie Press Revolution has the last of the third edition hardbacks um, at I think a very reasonable twenty dollars. Um, and the PDF is is up on drive through and and IPR as well and itch. It hasn't really evolved. The third edition is basically it's it's the first edition with second edition bolted on and the third edition bolted on the back of that. It's not a complete rewrite. If you already have first edition, you certainly don't need second edition. Third edition, possibly. Um, but I wasn't going to rewrite a huge huge quantities of it. Um, 
but I'm still I'm still really pleased with most of it. There are still jokes in there that in the text that creep up on me and and surprise me when I reread it. Um, I think a couple of the the best jokes I've I've ever written. The line about Baron Munchausen coming from an old and noble family. It's rumored that one of his ancestors stowed away on the Ark. Um, I just I love I'm so pleased with that. Just as a, a concept of of not only someone stowing away on the ark, which is a, a conceit I've never seen done, but using it as a justification for your family being an old and noble one. Um, <laughs> it, it makes me laugh. Anyway, it's, it is what it is. It's, um, I don't think it's the greatest game ever. I don't think it's the game as ga- greatest game I've ever written. Um, but for what it sparked in terms of not only the new style games, but you know, for being a catalyst for, the storytelling movement. Um, I think it stands up. It's still it's still a lot of fun to play. It's you know I still get asked to play it at conventions. I still very occasionally see other people playing it. Um, it's you know a game that you can play for an audience and will be en- enjoyable um, without necessarily having professional actors perform it. Um, and I'm always my my regret is that the podcast crews have not picked up on it um, mm. it's not become a staple mm. of, of podcasting and actual plays um and i always hoped it would but uh, oh well you know um I, I i'm no sour grapes there it just it just it feels like a natural fit for the format and there's uh, plenty of time still yep. oh yeah um well uh, yeah hint hint yeah, uh, there, there, there might there might be a podcast. Oh, but it. W- I'll tell you why it hasn't shown up on podcast, James. This was what I was thinking about. Uh, yeah. Is that you have to be in the same physical location to pass the coins around, and it would be very awkward to do that online, and it you wouldn't have going. the same feeling. Well, honestly, as as a podcaster, my first inclination is that it's too short. Ha <laughs> ha! Podcast uh-huh. actual play podcasts are often at least an hour in length. Um, Mm. You know, they are longer forms that people listen to commutes or at work. Uh, They want a long immersive stories um, and short punchy ones. uh, You're missing a lot of the, the joy of the game is, you know, playing to the audience being the other players of the game when you're listening to it. um, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that'll be something I'll have to try. So I am curious about that, but um, I think uh, that is one of the reasons why is that it is short Um, role playing games and actual plays as a rule are not. um, Interesting. No, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, But as for the physical location stuff, yes, I'll have to get onto tabletop simulator and do, (laughs) but it'll just be four piles of coins around the table. Uh, no, we could do it on Twitch if you're all just just grab some beers and some costumes and we can have virtual tokens. It'll yeah. be fine. All right. It does. One thing I was going to say earlier on is certainly at conventions, I always I take hats. You know, mm-hmm. Just try get a bunch of cheap tricorn pirate hats, and everyone gets to wear a hat, and it just everyone gets it. At that oh point, yeah. yeah, you know, because it's not them; it's it's the character who's wearing the hat. Um, and Keith Johnstone, who I've talked about, I'm sure I've talked about before, who wrote Impro, the yep. which was one of the were the urtexts of, of certainly the British role playing scene, experimental role playing scene in, in in the 90s, talks about hats and masks a lot, and anything that just divorces you and goes, you are not you, you are the character, and lets you you just run with that. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, 
playing the game in a hat is a different experience to playing it not in a hat. I did once play it with someone who was in full armor, um, and we were all very conscious of the fact that he also had a long sword, you know, an actual <laughs> sharp long sword at his belt. Wow. Um, but uh, yes, um, I can't remember if he won or not. I think he might have done. Probably. Um, yes. <laughs> he so on, on the he, let he the could win the win. duels for sure. He gave <laughs> advantage for the duels. Um, yes. First rule so. of, of duel is dueling is be sure to bring a sword. Mm hmm. Uh, oh, wow. For just 375 I could get an Orthodox Christian priest bishop mitre. There you go. Uh, an official for, one. Yeah. Tell us the story. How have you got that hat? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I would obviously hat. be Bishop Stolze. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, our next episode will be about my game, uh, Base Raiders. Uh, so, which is, which I gotta go find. Yep, uh, is a self-published, kickstarted game uh, that came out in 2014, I believe, um, and is yeah uh the the what happens when you do everything yourself except hire artists so art direction, <laughs> layout editing hey, writing i've been there yeah. yep oh yeah uh, it's it's a thing uh um, right so we'll, we'll talk about that uh but before we go of course we do like to thank our backers sure um i would personally like to thank the technical difficulties gaming podcast uh who it will shortly be my pleasure to actually do a role-playing session with on online i don't think we're recording i don't know if they are recording it for broadcast i don't mind at all if they do um not quite sure we're still discussing what we're going to play it may be my work in progress about teen detectives in the world of DD, which i've probably mentioned before <laughs> oh because of the joke in the title nancy drow Hey, I had not heard that, and because I am genuinely working on this, it is coming together very nicely. Wow! Nice. Yeah, very I good. just I feel like a little piece of my soul dried up and fell off. When I heard <laughs> that pun. That's my job. That's the sign of a good pun. Uh, my thanks goes out to Ian Matthew Michael Berg, and I'm not sure if that's Ian Matthew and Michael Berg or Ian Matthew. A and Michael Berg, or just one person who's Ian Matthew Michael Berg. But whether you are one, two, or three people, thank you for supporting the podcast. You thought it might be a typo for Borg at the end, and they're all one entity. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> I, I, hey, man, as long as they back the Kickstarter. <laughs> like, True, that, yeah. That, that's their prerogative. Uh, and finally, I would like to thank the uh, backer, Spencer Harris, uh, who is the co-host of a podcast I do called The Mix Six, which is a craft beer and variety discussion show, six beers in six topics. Uh, and our sixth beer, our sixth topic is always called Drunk Enough because that's when we've had enough beer to get into the really meaningful <laughs> topics of life. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much, Spencer, uh, for your support. And I will be sure to run whatever game you want uh, and probably take a shot of Malort uh, at the end of it. So Ooh, whatever, whatever you want, man. Yes. Uh, uh, well, anyway, thank you all uh, so much uh, for, again for supporting this Kickstarter. And uh, keep on. We are actually working on uh, figuring out what to do for season two. We definitely want to continue doing this. It's been a lot yep. of fun. So, um, but we we haven't finalized anything yet. But hopefully, we can have something out 
not too long after season one ends. Because we do also have an actual play of Fops of Vendemir uh, after we finish episode Woo-hoo! two. So, um, mm-hmm. That will be fun to do as well. Uh, Greg's new game. So um, Games are fun, Ross. G- games are fun, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we'll talk to you all later. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.